0: Live from the bridge at the Launchpad Studios in Huntington, New York, it's Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Cardboard Memories, Clearview Long Island, the law firm of Decalator Cohen, and DePrisco, the Phoenix Tube Company, Pims Incorporated, fueling brand performance for 30 years, Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, and Soho Table Hockey. Here are your hosts, Mark and AJ. Joining us
1: now are the co-authors of an amazing new book, uh, Chili Dog MVP Dick Allen, the 1972 White Sox, and a Transforming Chicago. John Owens is an award-winning media professional with more than 30 years of experience as a writer, journalist, producer, director, and videographer. His co-author is Dr. David Fletcher, who is a 1972 alum of Glenbard West High School in Glen Allen. Illinois, where he played baseball, sometimes taking three trains as a teenager to go to baseball games in Chicago. He attended over 20 White Sox games in 1972 and witnessed firsthand what Dick Allen meant to the city. The two of them have worked together in the past on Buck O'Neill and Black Baseball in Chicago, a documentary written and filmed by John Owens. The documentary aired on PBS and won the praise of White Sox owner Jerry Reinsdorf, who noted that the film was virtually and vitally important for future generations. In September of 2010, Dr. Fletcher screened the documentary at the Baseball Hall of Fame Film Festival in Cooperstown, New York. It is a pleasure to welcome them both to Sports Talk New York. Welcome, gentlemen. Thanks, Mark. Thanks,
2: Mark. Thanks.
1: Our pleasure. So first off, Dr. Fletcher, I know that for several years you had urged Dick Allen to be recognized for his many contributions to the White Sox franchise. In 2012, you convinced the seven-time All-Star to participate in a two-day event in U.S. Cellular Field. Which was co-hosted by the White Sox, and after that event, you became very close to Dick and his family. When did the idea of this book come about, and why was John the co-author? As it seems to me that there's such a great synergy between the two of you, and you know, you both have a a little bit of different perspective on what Dick Allen meant to people.
2: Well, Well, that's a great question. Uh, Actually, the book origins um, came back uh, after. John and I had done the Buck O'Neill film, we went to Cooperstown and that was part of the filming for the Buck O'Neill film was the unveiling of the statue for, for Buck O'Neill. And so during that time, uh, Goose Gossage uh, was inducted in the Hall of Fame. And so uh, John and I went to uh, the press conference for, for Goose and um, you know, I was the one in the audience to ask him all the questions about his rookie year with the White Sox and what Dick meant to him. And we were supposed to be able to interview Dick and uh, Chuck Tanner who had surprised goose uh, coming up the induction, but uh, Dick left, went back down to Wampum. And years later, I found out why he left. Uh, Cause it was hard for him. All his peers were there, but he was not in the hall of fame. It was very difficult, but he was class act to go there and honor his, the person he mentored. So that's when it started. We, and we just, I started collecting material. Uh John interviewed Dick in 2012. We talked about it uh, and just kept on going. And you know, we knew the 50th year anniversary is coming up. And plus, also, you know, Dick's death and the Hall of Fame vote controversy, uh, Black Lives Matter. It was just a perfect thing. And, and I and I think people have really liked the synergy between the voice John and I both bring, different perspectives. But I think a lot of people really can't see the difference as far as the authorship.
1: Absolutely. And it's interesting, Dr. Fletcher, that you mentioned uh, Goose Gossage. John, Goose does the forward to the book, and he states, I never saw anybody ever play the game like Dick. And boy, this is not a slap in the face to anyone else because I play with tremendous, fantastic Hall of Fame players. But little did I know that in 1972, I was watching the greatest exhibition of baseball that I would ever watch in my life. And Dick Allen was the greatest player I ever had the privilege of playing with. So, John, given all the great players, if you go back and you look at the players that Goose Gossett's played with, with the Yankees, the Pirates and the Padres, did that comment
0: in, in some ways just shock you? It surprised me, Mark, and it didn't surprise me Yeah, because, as you mentioned, I mean, all the great players that goose played with over the years from Reggie Jackson to um, to Lupinella, to Tony Gwynn, uh, just so many names and and he, goose is always, said that Dick was the greatest player that he's he's uh, played with. And, and, and it's not surprising because Dick was such a, a, um, a, a great mentor towards Goose. I mean, Goose, he came up with the 1972 White Sox and he immediately gravitated towards Dick because Dick was such a, a, a even though he had the reputation of being a malcontent, he was actually a great professional in his own way. And he was a great mentor to younger players. And he proved that with the 1972 White Sox. And especially with, with Goose. Goose's comment is about, you know, Dick's, you know, five tool capabilities that he really showcased in 1972. He did everything well. You know, people know him now as, you know, a great power hitter. But he was more than that. He was, he was a great base runner. He was, he was... He started out as a poor fielder because he was playing out of position with the Phillies when he came up at third base. But by the time, by 1972, he was a he was a, a more more than serviceable defensive first baseman and he knew everything about the game and that's what goose was referring to when he said that he was the greatest player that he had ever played with because he 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 you know even though he didn't have this reputation with the media he understood the mental approach to the game and he understood how to work pitchers and he relayed that information to goose and goose used that to become a hall of fame pitcher himself
1: All that with a 40-ounce bat, no less, as well. Uh, Dr. Flesher, you and John really do a a tremendous job of laying out the state of the White Sox, as well as the South Side of Chicago in the early 70s. In fact, Chapter 4 really gives us a tremendous snapshot of the South Side. For those of us here on the East Coast in New York who only knew of the South Side of Chicago because of Jim Croce and and good times, um, how did the state of the neighborhood affect the team?
2: Well, I think that's the best question for John, because he lived, grew up in the South Side. I mean, I was a West Suburban kid. I got my taste of the South Side because I went to med school at Rush, which was uh, in the the West Side of Chicago, right near the South Side. So I spent a lot of time. But I think John can
0: really address that. Yeah, you know, Mark, there are actually similarities, you know, with the White Sox and with, you know, the Yankees in the South Bronx, especially in the early 70s, when, you know, they they, were the we're looking at a really diverse neighborhood, a diverse area in the South side. It's, it's by, by uh, Sox park, you know, one side is um, uh, uh, African-American and there's a lot of low income areas uh, uh, adjacent to the park. And on the other side, there's a, uh, of the tracks and on the other side of the park, there's um, a lot of uh, white, quote-unquote, white ethnic neighborhoods, Irish, Italian, Polish, Lithuanian, and those cultures clashed in the early 70s, um, especially as the south side around uh, around Comiskey Park was historically, you know, where the African-American population was concentrated. But after, you know, the 1960s and the civil rights era, when Black families were starting to move Further out, um, there, there there were more difficulties because a lot of black families were moving into neighborhoods that were that were formerly white, and there were there were clashes between these two cultures. And we cover that in Chili Dog MVP because a lot of this happened right near the stadium. In the short term, I mean, there was concern because of a lot of instances, uh, uh, not not necessarily instances happening around the ballpark. But you, there, there, there was violence in the '60s due to you know the, a lot of uh, uh, things that were happening in the civil rights era, so that affected attendance. Attendance of, that was part of part of what affected attendance at White Sox Park in the late 1960s. That wasn't the only thing that affected affected attendance. the The, the poor quality of the uh, White Sox teams in the late '60s yeah. also affected um, attendance. But uh, as much as the white sox don't want to admit it that that, you know, the reputation of being a near low, a low income community um sort of colored the reputation of the team, especially in comparison with the cubs who are on the north side, who are on the north side in a, a, a neighborhood that was also, you know, uh, lower middle class in the nineteen sixties and seventies, but it slowly but surely was beginning to gentrify. So th- there was a different perception between the Cubs and the White Sox due to the neighborhood. But but in the book, we look at the South Side as is is really an interesting large. It's the largest uh, area in the city, and it's it's it's, it's not solely it, it's it's not uh, just dominated by um, the African-American community. It's a lot more diverse than that. And We try to, to, to represent the entire South Side and how it affected the White Sox and how the White Sox a- affected the community
3: during the 1960s and 70s. So, ostensibly, this is a baseball book or on the cover by the title, whatever. Why do you feel is really so important to juxtapose all the social aspects into what is ostensibly a baseball book?
2: well we thought it was really important because we needed to have a a story about the context of the time and that it was really important because chicago was changing and that the the fan base had changed and the perception of the ballpark being a bad neighborhood and just it was important i think to tell that story because the South side had two big institutions. They had the White Sox and, and they had the Stockyards and the Stockyards were closing and that was changing. And the White Sox were an American league charter team and they were gonna leave. And this was a civic institution that meant so much. And so we had to tell that backstory. I mean, we could have just did a baseball book, but it wouldn't have been the same book. And I know people really liked the aspect of including the backstory about, The context of the time, and that's probably something John and I deliberately did, Uh, you know, we could have just, you know, had the, you know, the season narrative and stuff like it It wouldn't have been as good book, and especially because it's really a book about 2021 2020 and even to current day. But the whole black lives matter a lot of pretext as far as society changes, you know, the past is a prologue to the future and, and and we really wanted to tell that story.
1: It's interesting that, that you mention uh, about the, the Sox and their history, because uh, most baseball fans of a certain age think of Bill Vec whenever you talk about the White Sox, but John Allen and his brother own the team in between Bill Veeck's two different terms of ownership, and the book really paints him as a hero, as the White Sox were actually sold in 1969 to a pretty prominent name in the, in the game of baseball. Dr. Fletcher, can you tell us a little bit about how the White Sox almost left Chicago, who that prominent person was and how important John Allen was from stopping that from happening?
2: Well, I think you really, you bring that to the forefront, which is something most people don't know about the White Sox, that this team was responsible for keeping them in Chicago. It was basically John Allen, who was the unsung hero. Him and his brother were the, the son of Arthur Allen Sr., who was with VEC in Cleveland when he owned the Indians. He, he helped him with the investment with the White Sox. He died of a heart attack. Left the team to his two sons. Art was, uh ran the ball club. John was, uh, you know, was there, but he was, you know, considered like the you know, silent. Was in the in the back of the room telling golf stories and stuff like that. But he really was the one that really cared about the, the civic institution. And so, the uh, team was, you know, going down the uh, the uh, in the tubes. And uh, after the '67, when they missed out in the World Series, '68 and '69 were terrible years. Uh, tenants was just utterly terrible. He, he had engineered a deal uh, for the White Sox to play 10 games in Milwaukee in 1968 and then again, 10 games again in 69. Uh, and so this was Bud Selig's way to get baseball back to Milwaukee. And they things were so bad they were losing money. They had a bad tax case held against them. And so there was a deal made in Labor Day of 69. It was consummated handshake deal. Uh City league was extremely ecstatic about it. Uh, but Art never told his brother. And so his brother said, No, we're gonna call this to a vote. And so basically Art had to be- basically tell Bud, we're not gonna do this deal. And you know, I had the you know pleasure of talking to Bud 50 years later, 53 years later about it and his memory about it. You know, he was extremely disappointed, heartbroken. But the situation where the pilots became available came up. Immediately after he got rejected by the White Sox, so John takes over the team. His brother has gone, and he's not going to do a new stadium like Art was trying to do. He's going to keep him in Comiskey Park. He was going to rebuild the team, and and he did, and he made good on his promise. Unfortunately, he was still underfinanced, and but he he got with Dick Allen and the seventy one and seventy two teams, uh, brought res- some resurrection to the community and obviously Dick in 72 over a million dollars in attendance a million in attendance and they got their big radio contract back. And so John Allen saved the team and then on the flip side when the recession in 74 75 happened, you know, he was really desperate for money. They Dick Allen had left the team in September of 74 because of injuries and it was about to get sold to Seattle and John, John Allen you know, got Bill Beck in there. What most people don't realize, John Allen was an owner of the White Sox until he died of a heart attack in 1979. He had 20% interest. So he really was an unsung hero. Well, what's so great about this
1: book is just, you know, going back and and looking at the history and and the timelines and, you know, Dick Allen was traded actually at that point, he was still referred to as Richie Allen was traded the White Sox, December 3rd in 1971. Um, He didn't accept the deal. Then there was Chuck Tanner going out to visit him. Uh, Dick Allen's mother was instrumental in him eventually signing. Um, And and it's so interesting the day he addressed the, the media Um, From that point forward, he would be known as Dick Allen. Um, It was just such an interesting day, memorable for so many different reasons. One, um, I guess his quote was uh, when they asked him what he wanted to be called and his initial response to that was just great. Um, And then his signing coincided with the Major League Baseball strike, which lasted 13 days. Can you tell us a little bit more about that famous quote about, you know, when he was asked what he wanted to be called and just the circumstances around a superstar like that signing a contract and Major League Baseball going on strike? Tell us a little bit about that, John.
0: Yeah, so as you mentioned, Dick was traded on December 3rd, 1971. He was traded for Tommy John, the famous Tommy John of the Tommy John uh, surgery, um, who uh, was productive for the White Sox for a period of years, and and after his his revolutionary surgery would become uh, effective for the Dodgers. Um, he, Dick, uh, as he was known to do, he before he uh, accepted the deal, he wanted to get what he was worth, uh, what he thought he was worth. He was famous for 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 holding out until he could get you know what what he thought he deserved. And he did that again in 1972. Ironically, while he was doing this, uh, the uh, Major League uh, Baseball Players Association had um, engineered a player's uh, strike that was related. It was the first modern day player strike, and it ultimately led to uh, free agency a few years later. But this initial strike uh, dealt with um, um, upping the, uh, pe- uh, the pension for retired players. Um, so it, it's a strike that went on throughout uh, March and early April. And on the day that the strike ended, um, Dick accepted the deal with, uh, 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 with the White Sox. And uh, the media had asked him about his, uh, what he would prefer to be called. He uh, was very um, diplomatic about it, but he always preferred to be called Dick. He did not want to be called Richie. Richie was uh, a moniker that was given to him by the Philadelphia media. Uh, They uh, wanted to um, compare him to uh, earlier great Richie Ashburn. Uh, but Dick was never known as, as 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 Richie when he was growing up. He had always preferred Dick. And it, it took a while for the media to latch on to that. Even in Chicago, you read media accounts in the early part of the 1972 season. Um, in April and May, he was still being addressed as Richie. But finally, Dick won out. And by, by, by the middle of the 1972 season, he was known as Dick Allen, which is what he would, uh, prefer being, um, uh, um, recognized as in the media. So, um, it was, a, it was, definitely interesting that he, uh, settled, uh, with the White Sox on the same day that the strike ended in 1972.
1: And it's also, I mean, his initial response to the, the reporter's question was uh, he just didn't want to be called late for dinner, which, uh, you know, very interesting, uh, a great way of, you know, breaking the ice with the Chicago media. Opening day was supposed to be in Chicago, but because of the strike and the season being pushed back, the White Sox opened in Kansas City on April 15th at the time. Uh, Seems so crazy to say this. It was only the 25th anniversary. We just celebrated the 75th anniversary of Jackie Robinson's debut as the first African American player in the majors. Um, it also coincided with Dick Allen's American League debut as the White Sox first African American superstar. On top of that. The pitcher that Jackie Robinson faced in his very first game ever, Johnny Sane, was the White Sox pitching coach. And for those who did not watch the White Sox on a daily basis, you guys really detail the working relationship between Chuck Tanner and Sane. They were way ahead of the time. You know, we think Bobby Cox and Leo Mazzoni were, you know, the be-all and end-all. But really, these guys were those two way before that. Um, so innovative, uh, manager, pitching coach, tandems—maybe um, the most innovative in baseball history. Uh, John, what were some of the innovations that um, they came up with that made them so far
0: ahead of the curve? Uh, well, Chuck Tanner was uh, was ahead of the curve with 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 regards to analytics. Um, he had color coded sheets that uh, he. W- prepared or had his assistants prepare uh in the uh spring training which showed where you know the opposition where uh uh, um, where they would generally um hit the ball you know uh they he was um also uh working in tandem with uh johnny sane johnny sane had a different approach to pitching. um and it was a controversial approach. He was the uh, he, he preached um, um, the breaking ball. he was he was a guy who uh, wanted all of his pictures to 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 at least show a, a competent breaking pitch, like a curve or a slider. And uh, the other thing that 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 uh, Tanner and sane, uh, preached was a three uh, a three man rotation uh where where uh, uh um uh, pitchers would pitch on uh uh after after every third day which worked for some pitchers on the white sox specifically wilbur wood who was a knuckle knuckleballer. he uh, uh uh i think he threw over three hundred and forty innings in nineteen seventy two and he was durable and could do that it was more difficult for Uh, Other pitchers, uh, specifically Stan Bonson, who was uh, primarily a fastball pitcher, former Yankee, uh, who was acquired for Rich McKinney from the Yankees in 1972. So it was a little more difficult for guys like him. But uh, Johnny Sane definitely had a a, a novel approach. And even if you were a fastball pitcher like Rich Gossage, um, it, it was, it was it, some of the things that, that, that Johnny Sane taught specifically about, you know, spotting a breaking pitch, um, in a series of pitches is something that, uh, goose would, uh, would, uh, rely on and, and, and use throughout his 23 year career as a pitcher. So it, it Tanner and saying as a tandem were definitely ahead of the curve, um, in baseball in 1972. If I could briefly add on
2: onto that. You're sure, absolutely. Um, first of all, we had uh Johnny Sain's personal papers, so they were tremendous. Uh, about his whole development of the spinner, and he has his patent for, for rotation of the ball. Uh, all the White Sox pitchers raved about him. You know, Bonson and, and Tom Bradley, you know, it we got overworked, and Tom Bradley reheard his arm, but they thought he was brilliant. Uh, I mean, obviously, Jim Cotts going to the Hall of Fame because he came back to the White Sox, and, and uh, uh, Johnny Sain helped resurrect his career after after Minnesota. But Johnny Sain is kind of an unknown character for a lot of people, but he's the best pitching coach ever in baseball. And Lee Mazzoni was his assistant in at Atlanta, and people have to remember that. And we interviewed Terry Foster, who had never been interviewed in about 30 years, and he just raved about Johnny Sain and how Johnny Sain had told Tanner, we need to pitch Bart Johnson in the seventh inning, Goose in the eighth, and Terry Forster in the ninth. He was trying to do what was gonna be you know, industry standard now back in the seventies. And so he's a very, very fascinating character and very, very interesting. And also he was an extremely good hitter in 1948 when he was with the Braves and they went to the World Series, never struck out. As opposed to Wilbur Wood, uh, struck out in seventy two, uh, which was the last year American League hitters batted sixty five times.
1: <laughs> yeah, fascinating. I, I love the stuff on, on them. It was uh, absolutely fascinating. Dr. Fletcher, the first chapter of the book explains where the chapter, the title of the book comes from. And Slow Dog MVP refers to a game June fourth, nineteen seventy two, double header against the Yankees. Dick had played every game, including Game One of the double header. At that point, forty one straight games. He was two for four in Game One. Um, a 6-1 White Sox win, leaving him at
2: 327 through 41 games. Can you pick up the story from there? Yes, so John Allen was upset with Chuck Tanner that he was out of the lineup for game two. They had 51,000 fans show up for, for this game, uh, this doubleheader back day. And so he was, you know, the star was I playing the game two. And Chuck said, hey, I'm gonna bring him in at the right situation. And that's what happened. And so they were losing 4-2 uh going into the bottom of the ninth and uh, rick reicher uh, made the first out and then um, bill milton uh, got walked and then mike andrews uh, got a single so it's first and second one out and tanner had summoned uh dick from the locker room at the time he was sitting in the locker room eating a chili dog and uh, he didn't want to come out and, and uh, pinch hit but he did but when he's getting ready to to, to go make an appearance, he spills a chili dog that was prepared by a clubhouse attendant named Jim O'Keefe, and uh, he had to quickly get ready, get a new uniform on, and he went out, and Sparky Lyle, who was the best reliever in baseball at that time, on a one-on-one pitch, he had a screaming Mimi line drive that, what, 20 feet off the ground that just absolutely electrified uh, the stadium, uh, White Sox Park. And uh, McPhail, the general manager of the, of the Yankees, was listening to the game, hearing uh, Bill White and Rizzuto and the, 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 about the game, almost drove off the George Washington Bridge when he heard the, so it's a, it's a signature moment. Uh, it basically really captivates what he meant to Chicago, and I've been quoted a lot about that, you know, Dick was uh, Michael Jordan before there was Michael Jordan, and this was
3: his Michael Jordan moment. John, Dick Allen's reception in Chicago was much different than what happened to him in Philadelphia. What is there about Chicago, about the White Sox, that led him to be feeling much more appreciated, more comfortable in Chicago than he was certainly in Philadelphia?
0: Yeah, I I think, first of all, his relationship with the media was better here. Um, I think he he needed a fresh start uh, after a, a lot of difficulties with the media in Philadelphia. And the other thing about the White Sox is they, they, they're, they're interesting because they 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 really more than any other team in the city, uh, more than the Cubs, um, they, they have a really diverse fan base, partially because of where they're located on the South Side. And this is something that, that Dick noticed immediately, and and he really admired the fact that that there was such a diverse uh, group of Sox fans. That that came to White Sox Park every day, and I, I think he appreciated that. And the audiences, the crowds, immediately appreciated him, and they showed that appreciation. Um, it, it, you know, he was he, he started so well in 1972, and 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 with the White Sox, the White Sox traditionally were a pitching and defense organization, at least back then they were, not anymore. But, you know, the go-go White Sox were all about, you know, uh, pitching and 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 and, and Nellie Fox and Louis Aparicio up the middle and speed. They never really had a really sexy power hitter, somebody who, you know, could uh, win a game with a three-run home run like Dick. And that's something that fans latched onto and, and, and Dick noticed that they latched onto, you know, and were su- super enthusiastic about what he was doing. And, you know, it was, a, it was really a, a love affair between him and the fans and, and the media caught on to that too. And for the most part, up until 1974, he was, he, he he got a lot of respect from the media here. Even he, you know it, it, the 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 age of the you know the sports writers uh, uh, who were covering him here in Chicago were similar to you know the age here in uh, when he when he was playing in Philadelphia and later in St. Louis and L.A. But they 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 seemed to understand him a little bit better than the the media on the East Coast. Um, and there's so, no Frank
3: Thomas type player on the on the White Sox roster.
0: Right. Well, I mean, he was a, he was the veteran on the roster. Yeah. He was the guy that everybody looked up to. So, he was he was considered a leader. Even, you know, even though he was a, he was a non-traditional leader, the guy who wouldn't uh, necessarily take batting practice and show up 20 minutes before a game, but his teammates understood why he was doing that. You know, he he had a specific reason. He didn't want to he he thought batting practice uh, didn't help him because he, he was seeing pitches, 60-mile-an-hour uh, pitches. And he said, you know, how, how's that going to help me in a game when I'm, you know, going up against Nolan Ryan, who's throwing 100? So that was his rationale. And, and, and his teammates on the White Sox, at least, uh, partially, because, you know, they were younger and looked up to him. They 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 accepted his, you know, his differences, you know, his he Iconoclastic behavior and and, and, and and looked up to him. So, I mean, it was a combination of, you know, support from the team, support from the media, and support from the fans that made the Chicago experience for Dick so much different than other cities.
1: We literally could probably do three shows on this book. There's so much we're leaving out and and intentionally because we want people to go out and buy the book. There's great stuff about Roland Heemond. I, I remember, you know, when I was growing up, you know, calling into sports phone every, you know, winter trade meetings because his name was always mentioned. He's on the floor with this team and that team. Um, Nancy Faust, you know, people today think that walk up music just started in the nineties. I mean, the stories about Nancy Faust is incredible. That, 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 that
3: chapter is pretty fast. I really love that chapter.
1: Yeah, yeah
3: she she brought the baseball as we see it today
1: right but before we let you go we we need to ask this of both of you um you have such great memories of dick allen who set a record that as a fan you probably don't want to you know remember this record um he's now fallen short of the hall of fame you know by but one vote two times uh why do you think he's not earned that plaque yet In the past, White Sox management and Jerry Reinsdorf have made a big push for Minnie Minosa, Jim Cott for the Hall of Fame. Um, But Reinsdorf said that he doesn't feel Allen had a long enough resume to be inducted. Is there a rift? Was there a rift between Reinsdorf and Richie Allen and Dick Allen? And lastly, when he does make it into the Hall of Fame, will he be wearing a
2: Phillies hat or a White Sox hat? Whoever wants to take it first, go right ahead. All right, I'll take it. Um so I was at the both watch parties next to Dick's son, Doobie. So I was there firsthand, disappointment the last time because we thought we had it in the bag. Uh we knew that White Sox were advocating for many, and rightfully so, so was I. He was deserving. Uh they weren't so much advocating for Jim Codd, even though he'd been a member of the team. But um uh I don't understand, you know, what I've the quote that Jerry had given in 2014 about Dick having a checkered career. Um, we hope that he reads the book, maybe get a different perspective on Dick as a person. Uh, there was Dick did work for the White Sox in 1986, uh, when Hawk Harrelson was the manager after Russo got fired, uh, there was a little dust up with Dave Dombrowski and so forth. Uh, Dombrowski was the guy who replaced, uh, Bob Watson in 2014 and Watson was sick and it was widely believed that Dabrowski was the no vote that would have been a yes vote for Watson in 2014. So, um, you know, I, Dix has the best stats of any player for 11 years. I mean, OPS plus his runs created. I mean, the stats are there. MVP, 1972. And that's what, you know, that's what our book was all about, was to showcase that singular year of pinnacle success that saved a franchise that no one else could talk about or say. So Rookie of the Year, all these accolades, career speaks for itself, but also what he went through as a person, all the racism and stuff like that, Little Rock, and he overcome and, and he was forgiving his riff with Frank Thomas. They became you know, friends after that, they exchanged Christmas cards, he was extremely forgiving Christian man. And that was a thing I enjoy with my friendship with him and to see that. So the good news is that recently they just changed this last week, the the committees. So instead of having to wait to 2026, it looks like we're going to have a shot in 2024. And so to answer your question, because I got to go see some patients, uh, because I am a working physician, um, Dick wants to go into the White Sox and it will upset some of my Philly fans but he made that very clear and I will recommend if you you see the announcement when his death was announced on December 7th 2020 look what look what had he was wearing when it was, the announcement was made he loved chicago he, his biggest mistake he ever said was leaving in September of 1974 he was hurt you know if he would have gone on the on the DL then and they would to, but he was hoping John Allen would talk him out of it it would have been a different different situation so i hope that gives you an answer in uh, a very personal answer i talked to his son last night about this same question he asked
1: perfect uh, perfect point to end on gentlemen thank you so much for your time tonight right uh, like i said we could have done four shows on this fabulous right. book where's the best place for people to get it
2: amazon um, i'm assuming Amazon's for the electronic Kindle version, but just basically a Chili Dog MVP, uh, the website. It's in some stores, uh, and, and so just check a Chili Dog MVP, and they can order it
0: online. Okay. Right. www.chilidogmvp.com. Awesome, John Owen, right. Thanks, Dr. Guys. David J. Fletcher,
1: right. co-authors of Chili right. Dog
0: MVP, Dick Allen, the
1: 1972 White Sox, and transforming Chicago.